As was stated, last Sunday was our council meeting, and next Sunday is our communion. And so I ask you, what kind of communion service are you anticipating next Sunday? What will it take for us to have a deeply moving service? What would it take? You know, as you and I ponder our past, we might be tempted with thoughts such as these. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, and our family was regular attendees at most of the meetings of the church, and I never really got caught up with tobacco and alcohol and drugs, and I really never ran around with a bad crowd and did a lot of carousing. You know, I have also been involved in a lot of good projects, Christian aid work projects and so on. And, and I've led songs and taught Sunday school for a good many years. I, I just never was a really bad person. I believe thoughts like that are a stench in the nostrils of our Heavenly Father. As you and I view the masses of humanity and as we consider the moral landscape around us, are we ever tempted with thoughts such as the ones I just described? And I propose to you that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for the self-righteous. I believe that self-righteousness and self-sufficiency are progressive ills that affect both the vision and the memory. They will blind us to our own spiritual needs, and they will dim our memory of our own need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, please don't think that I feel like that you as a congregation, you have a lot of issues with self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. But I do think we need to be aware of it. Jesus often addressed it in his teachings and parables. But I would ask you, is it possible that self-sufficiency and self-righteousness could detract from next Sunday's communion service? For a text, I invite you to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And I'll be referring mostly to the NIV this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 for the text. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I was reminded of the song, In Christ Alone. In him, in Christ alone, we have redemption. Or our sin debt has been paid. How? Through his blood. I was blessed by the songs we sang again. And Brother Clinton led, Nearer, still nearer. Second verse read like this. Nearer, still nearer, nothing I bring. Not as an offering to Jesus my King. Only my sinful, now contrite heart. And this is what really caught my attention. Grant me the cleansing thy blood doth impart. Grant me the cleansing thy blood doth impart. Once again, God moves.
and I appreciate it. Our sin debt has been paid through the blood of Christ. The title of the message this morning, it took as much blood, it took just as much blood. It took just as much blood. First point of the message, it took just as much blood to redeem the elder brother as it did the prodigal son. I invite you to Luke chapter 15. Several of the passages we'll be looking at this morning are familiar, but there's a lot of good that we can learn, a lot of things that we can pull out of these passages. I'm not going to read the whole passage. You know this passage well, the parable of the prodigal son, but I'd like to read Luke 15 verses 11 to 13 and really extends down to verse 31, but let's read the first three verses to begin with. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set out for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself into a citizen of that country and, you know, he went to feed pigs and so on. Notice in verse 11, not one, but there are two sons. And what did this first son or the younger son, he made a request in verse 12. He made a a demand that his father would give him his inheritance and his freedom. This request not only dishonored his father, but the request dishonored or did not show appreciation for the values of the family. And he desired his freedom. It was an unprecedented demand. Only, usually the, when the estate is divided, that's at the death of the father. But this younger son, he came and he demanded while his father was still living, give me the portion that befalls me. And notice, the father, he complied. And he didn't give just the inheritance to the prodigal son, the younger son. It says he divided There were two sons, remember, and he divided the inheritance with both of his sons. And if you will, I'd like to consider in today's economy what this might have looked like. Let's say that the estate was worth $1 million. So when the father went to divide his estate, it's my understanding that he would have given $333,000 and change to the younger son, and he would have given 666000 and change to the older son. And the older son would have also received the birthright. So that when the father passes away, the older son would have been the patriarch. He would have been the spiritual leader in the family. But anyway, the younger son, he received one-third of the estate. And he took his journey. 
Verse 13 says that the younger son, he wasted his inheritance. Today we might call this young son a narcissist. A narcissist is someone who has tunnel vision, that the only thing that they want to do is they want to live out for their own pleasure. That's what a narcissist is. But notice in verse 17, we have a beautiful transition. The NIV says, when he came to his senses. I don't know what he said to himself, but as he looked back over his short period of freedom, he thought, what was I thinking? I have really messed it up. And he thought about home. He thought back to his father. He thought about the good that he had, the food and the protection and all that went with it. When he came to his senses. In verse 17, he didn't say, well, you know, I think I'm going to go back. I'm going to talk to the father and, you know, tell him that, you know, I've I had a bad time. And no, that's not what he said. Verse 17 says, I will confess my sin. I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And I'm no worthy, no longer worthy to be your son. Brothers and sisters, every one of us have needed to come to that point where we go back and go to the Father, go to Jesus and say, I have sinned against you, seeking that compassion. And notice in verse 20, notice the beautiful, it seems like the Father was scanning the horizon. He was looking for that son. And then he in the distance he saw him. And there's at least four things that happened here. Number one, he saw him. Number two, he had compassion on him. Number three, he ran to him. And number four, he hugged him and kissed him. Probably there was some a smell even yet on this son, a la pig pen. And I don't know what his clothes were torn and tattered and dusty. And this father embraced him, hugged him, and kissed him, and he ran. So the question comes, why did the father run? It's my understanding that the father, it was undignified for a a father or a landowner, an older man, to run. But this man, he girded up his robes. And he ran. Maybe he exposed his knees, but he was in a hurry. And he ran to this son. Why did he run? It's my understanding that in the Jewish culture, there's a ceremony that they call kazaza. And you know how that in the Middle Eastern culture... They live by honor and shame mentality. If you do the things that you should and you honor the family, you honor the community or the town, there is honor. And you are uh, recorded as a, a person, a citizen, a, standing, a good standing up citizen. But if you go out and you bring dishonor uh, to that family and community, you are shamed. It's my understanding that in this, in the Talmud, or 
there is this ceremony called Kazaza. And it ex- explained like this, and I quote, Any Jew who loses his money among foreigners and then tries to return home was ceremonial- ceremonially banished, where a clay pot filled with burnt beans was broken at the feet of the offender as a visual symbol that the town and the community rejects him forever. There was only one exception to this ceremony, and that was if the father, he would intervene, and if he would go, if this father ran, and he would intercede, and he would get to the son or the offender before the town elders did, that was the only exception to this kazaza. Uh, ceremony. Now this morning, I don't have burnt beans in here, but that's my understanding that they would have a clay pot of burnt beans and in the distance would come this offender coming back to town and they would take this clay pot with burnt beans and throw it at his feet and it would shatter, symbolizing the shattered relationship uh, that this offender, he had He had dishonored the family, he had dishonored the community, the town, and he was banished or excommunicated forever. But the only exception was the father. If the father would intervene, well then Kazaza would not happen. And so I don't know whether this is for sure what happened, but it's probably that this son recognized what he was facing. He was facing Kazaza when he got back to town and he would be banished and he would say, Father, I'm I'm not worthy to be your son. Just treat me like a slave or a hired man. But you know what happened. The father saw him in a distance and whether he was trying to intervene, the elders of the town, he saw the son, he ran to him, he hugged him, he kissed him, and put a robe on his on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet because he loved him and he forgave him. I believe the, the father knew the attitude of the prodigal son. Notice in verses 28 to 32, this older son was incensed with the response of the father. I'm going to go ahead and read those verses. The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pled with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we have had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. I thought it was interesting. The father said, My son, you are always with me and everything everything I have is yours. Isn't it true that he already had divided the estate and he had given the son the money and the birthright? And he had already given these things to his son. He said, everything I have is yours anyway. But anyway, this, this older brother was incensed. 
And he got in his father's faith and said, Look, I've done all these things. What kind of an attitude? I would ask you a question. After the prodigal son came home, which son's heart was closer to the father, the prodigal son or the older brother? Which heart was closest to the father? I submit to you that it took just as much blood to redeem the older brother as it did the prodigal son. Second point of the message It took just as much blood to redeem the religious leader as it did the sinful woman. Another story from Luke. Chapter 7 this time. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We'll start with a few verses. Verses 36 to 39. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's table, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with the hair, with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Notice in verse 36 that Jesus, he accepted this invitation into the home of Simon the Pharisee. Obviously, Simon the Pharisee was a strict observer of the law. He knew what was in the law. He knew the code of ethics. He knew what was required to be a gracious host. And notice verse 37, you have the interruption. Here's a woman from town who has a very bad reputation. And she comes in, and she's weeping, and she's washing Jesus' feet with tears, and she's kissing his feet and applying expensive perfume. Why was this lady crying? I'd be glad for what you think, but... It seemed to me that this lady was crying because she was sensing tremendous guilt and sorrow for sin. And she had repentance in her heart, and Jesus knew her heart. The woman had a bad reputation in this town, but evidently there was another person in this town who had a reputation as well, and that was Jesus. She came to Jesus. She recognized Jesus for who he was, the Messiah. And she fell at his feet in contrition. A beautiful picture of someone that came back. In verse 39, Simon, it it is true, he judged the woman correctly. He said that this woman is a sinful woman. But I ask you, where was Simon's love for the never-dying soul of this woman? What about us? Can we judge others when we hear of a story, whether it's in the church or somewhere out, and make a true judgment? But I'm challenged. Where is my love for the soul of that person? Do we have the love? It reminds me of what 
Nabil Qureshi said, he's the one that wrote the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And you know that story. Some of you do, I feel sure. In the 11th grade, there was a girl in his class that came up to Nabil and said, Do you know Jesus? And Nabil had studied lots from from Islam and the Quran, and he said, yes, I know Jesus. He said, Jesus was one of the greatest men that ever walked the earth. He healed the blind. He He, uh, fed the people a multitude. He did this and he did that. And he went on to explain how he knew Jesus according to the Quran. But Nabil made a... He acknowledged that when this girl came and said, Do you know Jesus? He said, My respect for her went very high. He said, There was a lot of other believers in my class that believed in in Jesus. And for them to know that if I was going to go to heaven, I would need to acknowledge and believe in Jesus. And nobody had ever asked me, Do you know Jesus? He said, I concluded one of two things about these other believers in the class. Either they did not believe their faith or they didn't care if I went to hell. That was Nabil's conclusion. What about us? Do we care about never dying souls? Are we willing to speak up? Verse 41, Jesus told Simon a story. Jesus often desired that his audience would identify with one of the characters within the story. In essence, which one of these people represent you? Who do you identify with in this story? And Jesus told the story of two debtors. They said one man had 500 what was it, 500 uh, denarii, which was, a denarii was one day's wages. And I guess I figured one day's wages would equal $100. And so 500 times that would be $50,000. This one person had a $50,000 debt. The other had a $5,000 debt. And Jesus told the story and said that the, the one that had uh, shared his money uh, with them Um, He forgave their debt, and Jesus asked Simon, he said, which one of the debtors will love him, love him the most? And Simon, he rightly answered, and he said, well, I suppose it's the one who had the larger debt forgiven or canceled. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And maybe we would say, I don't know Jesus' intention, but maybe some people thought from a society's perspective the first debtor was the sinful woman and she had this huge debt probably a gentile and simon the jewish religious leader had a much smaller debt but both of them were forgiven brothers and sisters which one of these debtors do you identify with In verse 44, Simon, in essence, Jesus said, you have, you, you have neglected common courtesy because I came into your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss of greeting. You gave me no oil for my head. 
And this sinful woman who was uninvited has exceeded in all these and much more. And I ask you and me, how large was your debt load? And I believe our understanding, our true understanding or perception of answering that question will make a difference in how much we love. How much was your debt load? If you understand it, if I understand it, it will make a difference in how we relate to Jesus and to others. I submit to you that it took just as much blood to redeem the religious leader as it did the sinful woman. The last point of the message. It took just as much blood to redeem you and me as it does for any sinner. And I thought of what passage could I go to that would reflect this. And I thought of Paul's testimony. And I won't tarry long. And to each of you in the auditorium this morning, would we all agree that Paul was a great man of God and he did a lot for the kingdom of God? Well, could we agree on that? You don't have to raise your hands, but I think we would. We recognize Paul was a great man of God and he did a lot of great things for the kingdom of God. But did Paul let those facts go to his head? Was Paul self-sufficient and self-righteous? Time and again, Paul reflected on the sins of his past life. And he reminded his readers that he was nothing outside of the grace of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10 from the NIV reads this way. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He was reflecting on the sins of his past. Verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. So how can we make this practical today? I'd like to ask you and me four questions. Number one, how much was your debt load? Two, how much have we been forgiven? Maybe more importantly, how much do we love? Number four, what is the substance that proves that love? May God help us to be aware of any self-sufficiency or self-righteousness that might detract from, that might diminish the beauty of our communion service next Sunday. In conclusion, I submit to you that it took just as much blood to redeem you and me as it does for any sinner. I'd like if we would sing a song together. And Brother Clinton, where are you? Do you feel... I can't see you. Okay. Do you feel comfortable leading that song or you want me to? Okay. If you all would, turn in your Zion's praises to number 162, Blessed Redeemer. Let's think about what Jesus has done for us. Did we have a huge debt load? Absolutely we did. And I hope this song can be a means of preparing us for next Sunday and what Brother Claire has to share at our communion service. I don't know what he plans to share, 
But I hope our hearts are touched. Help us to see a vision maybe like Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And when he saw God, he bowed. And he recognized Jesus for who he was. We didn't have anything to offer. But let's rejoice in the one who gave everything so that we could have all.